3: Best of the Best is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 200,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. To learn more and to get $50 in Airtable credit, visit Airtable.com slash Third Coast. That's Airtable.com slash Third Coast, all lowercase,
4: no spaces. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Pala Shah, and this is Best of the Best. Third Coast is an independent nonprofit arts organization in Chicago that celebrates the art and craft of narrative audio stories and the talented people who make them. Each year, we host an international competition to recognize the best audio stories from the past year the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. This year, we had the pleasure of receiving 731 entries from 39 different countries, and we listened to each and every single one of them, start to finish. But we don't make the final call on who wins the award. That hard job falls on our judges, a talented group of makers themselves, who we invite to select the 11 winning entries. These are the stories we're thrilled to present to you here on Best of the Best. Today, we're listening to three of our winning stories that each share a common theme. Over the next hour, we'll follow brave individuals who take change making into their own hands by picking up where institutions have failed. From St. Louis to Chicago to the Sonoran Desert, we'll see the work that goes into restoring honor, respect, and justice to people who've had it robbed from them by law enforcement, policies, and local government. Our first story, The Work of Closing a Notorious Jail, comes to us from 70 Million, a podcast that documents how locals are addressing the role of jails in the broader criminal justice system. Five years ago, Michael Brown's death at the hands of a police officer galvanized criminal justice reform activists in St. Louis. Today, they're still fighting for their community and gaining serious momentum to shut down the city's notorious workhouse jail. Reporter Carolina Hidalgo spent time with the Close the Workhouse campaign, the Arch City Defenders, and their supporters and detractors. Her reporting on this story won the 2020 Director's Choice Award. Here's The Work of Closing a Notorious Jail.
2: Close the workhouse! Inez Bordeaux is standing in traffic at a busy intersection, handing out flyers. She just got off an eight-hour nursing shift. She's sweating and running from car to car.
5: Spread the word. We're trying to close the workhouse. You know we spend $16 million a year on the workhouse?
2: Some people ask her why she wants to close the jail.
5: We're keeping people down there with rats, roaches. They got black mold. And we spend $16 million on it every year.
2: Other people ask if she's collecting signatures or if there's an election coming up. But Inez is just trying to get people involved in a campaign called Close the Workhouse.
5: Y'all come to a meeting next month. Y'all know somebody else been in the workhouse? I've
2: been there plenty
5: of times. You've been there plenty of times. times? Our meetings are the first Thursday of
2: every month. The workhouse is out on the edge of the city. It's been there for more than 50 years. It's a sprawling brick building on a 30-acre lot in between a junkyard and the Mississippi River. It has an official name, the Medium Security Institution. It was built in the 60s after the city tore down its original workhouse to make way for a highway. That workhouse was a literal debtor's prison next to a limestone quarry. People there spent their days hammering big pieces of rock into tiny little pieces of rock. And those rocks were used to pave the streets of St. Louis.
4: Hi,
5: we're trying to close the workhouse. Have you heard of it? No.
2: Inez says she won't be happy until every single person in St. Louis knows about the Close the Workhouse campaign. And for her, it's personal. Three years ago, she spent a month in the workhouse waiting for a court date.
5: It's a terrible, terrible, terrible jail that's down on Hall Street. It's been sued a bunch of times. Our organization's suing it it right now. Take a card.
2: St. Louis has faced multiple lawsuits over conditions inside its jails. And in 2009, the local ACLU released a report with allegations of physical and sexual abuse in city jails, including the workhouse. A few years later, two guards there pleaded guilty to forcing incarcerated people to fight each other, gladiator style. Inez says her time in the workhouse was the worst experience of her life. But to understand how she ended up there, we have to back up. I met up with her at her house one day to talk about what happened. Hi, Hi. how are you? Good, how are you? Inez starts the story 10 years ago, She was working as a nurse and living with her husband and their four children. Their youngest son was just six months old. She says her husband had been hitting her for a while. And one day, he went too far. So she took their children and left.
5: And after I left, I just could not afford to pay my daycare bill and my rent in the same month.
2: When she didn't have money for daycare, she had to call out of work to stay home with her kids she lost a couple jobs that way and started collecting unemployment benefits. And when she did find a new steady job, she still couldn't pay her daycare bill. So she kept collecting the unemployment.
5: I don't know if people understand, like, it's a vicious cycle. If I can't pay my daycare, then I can't go to work. If I can't go to work, can't take care of my kids. But there's no reason I should not have been able to. Um... It just, the way the state of Missouri is set up when I went and applied for childcare benefits, I made $57 too much. 57, not 157, not 257, 57.
2: Inez was charged with a felony, with larceny, for stealing the unemployment money. She actually should have been charged with a misdemeanor, but she didn't know that at the time. And she was facing a seven-year prison sentence. So she took a deal.
5: If I completed my probation, then the whole thing would fall off my record like
2: it never happened. And
5: I could just go on with my life. Only it's just not that simple.
2: Part of the deal was that she'd pay back the unemployment money. But then the charge showed up on a background check. You can't be a nurse and have a
5: felony. So I was asked to resign from my job, which I did, um, because I now had a felony record. I couldn't get another job.
2: And without a job, she couldn't stick to her payment plan. So she fell out of compliance with the terms of her probation, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. That's how she ended up in the workhouse.
5: If you're black in this city, you've either been to the workhouse or you know someone that's been to the workhouse. And so I had heard the stories about it, but I kind of thought that it was like exaggeration. You know what I'm saying? That people tend to exaggerate. But the first night there, I knew that all of the stories that I had heard over the years were true.
2: Inez had been inside several jails, she'd worked in some as a nurse. She also had some trouble paying traffic tickets when she was in her 20s. And in the small cities that make up the St. Louis suburbs, not being able to pay traffic tickets means you've probably spent a few nights in a few different jails. But the workhouse was different. Inez remembers her first night there. I was
5: sad. I didn't know what was going on. I was being held on a probation violation. I had
2: never been to the workhouse. As part of the intake process, she sat down with a nurse. And as the nurse asked questions, Inez started crying. And she said I was a suicide risk because I was emotional
5: and crying.
2: Inez says instead of putting her in an open pod with all the other women, They took her clothes, gave her a smock, and put her inside a cell.
5: I've been a nurse for a long time. I know what mental health services and an assessment looks like. And it's not taking a person's clothes away, giving them a smock to wear, and leaving them in a cell for three days alone without any human contact, without being able to call and reach out to their family, without being able to take a shower. That's not what what mental health services looks like.
2: After a weekend in the cell, Inez joined the other women. She says she remembers rats and mold and water pouring from the ceiling. She watched people pick roaches out of their food. A judge eventually set her bail at $25,000, but she couldn't afford that.
5: That 30 days showed me that the city and the state does not care. They do not care. And I can only assume that they do not care about black people because the workhouse is 90% black. 90% of the people that you see in there are black and they're all poor because if they weren't poor, they would be able to buy their freedom.
2: By the time Inez ended up in the workhouse, she was working two minimum wage jobs and making about $250 a week. Her kids had gone to live with their dad and she'd lost her apartment.
5: All of those things, all of those things, I never gave up hope. I always knew that I was going to be okay, that I was going to come out on the other side and everything was going to be fine. That 30 days in the workhouse, that was the first time I ever thought but I'm not gonna be okay. Not gonna survive this. Not gonna make it through. That's what that's what the workhouse does to people. It changes you.
2: Inez cries every time she talks about this. She says it's re-traumatizing, but she also wants people to understand something.
5: While I'm crying and I'm tearful, it's not sadness. It's Anger. Like, I'm mad as hell. I'm mad as hell. And angry gets done. It gets things done.
2: She's putting all that anger to use now as an organizer for the campaign to close the workhouse. It makes me feel strong. Like, I'm
5: part of an unstoppable force that is the Close the Workhouse campaign and the organizations that are behind the Close the Workhouse campaign.
2: The Close the Workhouse campaign is mostly led by Black women from St. Louis. Many of them got their start as activists five years ago after a Ferguson police officer killed Michael Brown on August 9th, 2014. That day changed everything in the St. Louis region. When
0: Michael Brown was murdered and the world turned its eyes to Ferguson, Missouri, we felt a deep call a deep sense of connection and a deep sense of grief that propelled us into saying
2: he must be the last. This is Michelle Higgins, the campaign's lead organizer. We knew at that moment that there was something being
0: unearthed by the ground where his blood was crying out.
2: Michelle is the director of worship at a local church here and a well-known faith leader.
0: I was four and a half years old when my great-grandmother pointed up the trees lining the highways um, on the road from St. Louis to Troy, Missouri, for a family reunion. And she'd point at some of the trees and say, that's where my uncle was hung, that's where um, my daddy's best friend was hung, that's where— and she would name all the different people who were lynched on different trees—
2: Michelle thought about those trees when Michael Brown was killed.
0: 30 years after I learned about lynching trees, I stood on the ground where a precious Black boy was murdered by law. And that was a symbol of terror. Michael Brown's body became a symbol of legalized racial
2: terror. After that day... Michelle says she dedicated herself to fighting for Black liberation. She helps lead the monthly Close the Workhouse campaign meetings, which sometimes means calling on her church background to lead people in song. She also co-directs a group of Black millennial activists called Action St. Louis. They're one of the main partners in the Close the Workhouse campaign, and they've been building political power here for the past few years.
0: We started with policing, and we went straight to politics.
2: Their biggest win came in 2018. They helped unseat the prosecutor who'd refused to bring charges against the officer who killed Michael Brown. That same year, Michelle launched a local office for the Bail Project, a national nonprofit that posts bail for people who can't afford it. She visited the workhouse multiple times a week to interview people before posting bail for them.
0: And they would launch into stories of how awful just their one day, just that day had been. And I, we had one client tell us, I feel like I was fighting rats for food. We've had people say they decided to stop eating for a while. And th- these are
2: stories that continue. Close the Workhouse is an abolitionist campaign, which means its organizers want to abolish all jails and all prisons and instead... They want us as a society to invest money in jobs, education, housing, and health care. Freeing people from cages means they
0: must have resources to assist them in the ways that will help them to thrive.
2: Michelle says what organizers definitely don't want is to see any money poured into trying to fix the workhouse. I
0: believe that we would hear from the mayor's office, let's make the cages cleaner Let's buy better food. Let's fix the plumbing. And let's keep those people in cages. And that will always be something that we disagree with.
4: That was an excerpt from the work of closing a notorious jail winner of the 2020 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Director's Choice Award. The story was reported by Carolina Hidalgo for the podcast 70 Million. It was edited by Jen Chien, with sound design by Luis M. Gill, and fact-checking from Sarah McClure. At our virtual awards ceremony, reporter Carolina Hidalgo began by speaking about the impact that Michael Brown's death had on St. Louis.
2: I spent almost five years in St. Louis and in the organizing and the movement work that I've been able to report on, there's always this subtext, which is we're here because of Mike and we're here for Mike. And that's what this piece really is about. It's about people fighting for each other It's about the fact that St. Louis is 50% black, but inside this St. Louis jail, 85 to 90% of people incarcerated are black. It's about the systems that oppress and destroy and about people who still do the work. Inez Bordeaux is one of the main organizers and Inez cries every time she talks about her time inside this jail it's re-traumatizing, but she told me that she will continue to tell her story because maybe it can change policies or laws and maybe it can make someone else's life a little bit better. I really want to thank Inez and the 70 million team. I couldn't have asked for a better editor than Jen Chien and Juleka Lantigua-Williams the person who started her own production company and brought all of these amazing people together. We talk a lot about diversity and representation in this industry, but to be a Latina from Queens and to have a Latina from the Bronx and also from DR, shout out to DR, rooting for you and just creating spaces where you have the opportunity to bring your full self to your work, is just some kind of amazing thing that I don't even have the words for. I really don't. And thank you to Third Coast for amplifying this piece.
4: Carolina Hidalgo, accepting the Director's Choice Award for the work of closing a notorious jail. To listen to this story in its entirety, as well as the rest of this year's winners, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up next, after the death of her adult son, a determined mother goes in search of information, compassion, and justice. Stay with us.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
4: Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Pala Shaw. Best of the Best is our annual ode to audio storytelling, where we bring you the winners of the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Today, we're listening to three stories that each follow changemakers, people who refuse to accept the status quo and set out to do something about it, Our next story takes us to Chicago, where the turbulent relationship between law enforcement and citizens is fueled by racial disparities and a history of violent policing. So, when Shapiro Wells' son, Courtney, was found outside of a police station with a fatal bullet wound, Shapirl immediately questioned the official narrative and demanded answers. That investigation is the basis for the 2020 Best Serialized Story-winning podcast, Somebody. Produced by the Invisible Institute. This is the first episode.
6: What you are about to hear does not implicate the Chicago police in the murder of Courtney Copeland.
3: When my son Courtney was 21 years old, he got a BMW convertible. He loved that car like it was his girlfriend. He would talk to it like good morning. Hello, baby. Buenos días, Bebe, buenos dias. Como estás, mi amor? Mm-hmm. The first time Bebe rolled into our driveway, it was late at night. Courtney and his drop top BMW. Courtney had the music blasting all the way up. You
7: did
3: it! It's it like like a little block party, you know, in the middle of my driveway. He had the top down. It wasn't even that hot outside, but, of course, he had the top down. It was a beautiful moment, and that was probably one of the most happiest moments I've seen him.
0: 2510, Robert. 2510,
4: Robert. 20. Just got flagged down at Grand Central, a gentleman just said he was shot.
0: Okay, we'll get EMS rolling to the 25th district. Okay. Uh
4: Yeah, send an ambulance right
3: away. But not even one year later, my son wound up with a bullet in his back outside a Chicago police station.
5: And there are still so many unanswered questions about what led
0: to the death of 22-year-old Courtney Copeland. Family members say Copeland was on his way to a friend's house when he was shot through his car window. A bullet hit his back. He
1: managed to flag down a police car in front of the 25th District Station and was rushed to a hospital. The wound was fatal.
3: There's what you hear on the news, that Courtney got shot, drove himself to a police station, where officers did everything they could to help him.
0: His mother's heart tonight left in pieces.
3: And then there's a truth. I believe that not enough has been done to solve Courtney's
7: murder. What would, really. you like, what would you like done that I haven't done?
3: I personally would have went back and re-interviewed everybody to make sure that... Re-interviewed the police? Oh, absolutely. My name is Chaparl Wells. I'm Courtney Copeland's mom. And this is somebody.
1: Everybody somebody's everyday.
3: Chicago police have one of the lowest murder-solve rates in the country, and it's even lower if you're black. So when it came time to find out who killed my son, I knew I'd have to figure it out on my own. I'm going to take you with me, step by step, in my investigation. But first... Let me tell you about my son. You need to know who he was in life because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about his death. Ooh. Courtney was born a day after my 21st birthday on New Year's Eve,
1: 1993. And I just still remember him sleeping on my chest sometimes. You know? That's my mom, Renee. Right, And his favorite thing was warm milk. And he talked about that and told the adult, Grandma, I still remember the warm milk you would give me when I was a baby. And I just thought that was so sweet.
3: What do you remember about the early years?
1: He would have, like,
7: little jokes and stuff.
3: Here's my husband Brent, Courtney's father. He's raised him since he was four years old.
7: You know, like, in fact, like, the first joke he had told me, he was like, what do you call uh stolen cheese i said what he said nacho cheese i'm like oh i'm like it was kind of corny but it was still funny at the same time and he had a, he had a million hell, of those y-
3: y'all both have cornball <laughs> yeah. and jokes that's right, why y'all got along yeah next here he is goofing off with some of his friends hey how you doing today what's your name
7: Clarity coupling
3: Courtney's pretending to be a contestant on American Idol. He's in the seventh grade, right at the age where his voice is changing. don't make sense right now, but it will. Let me tell you how
7: to make it fail. Oh.
8: Congratulations, Courtney. Oh, thank Coughlin. you,
2: though. I'm going to Hollywood, baby! Courtney
3: sure knew how to turn on the charm to get what he wanted. And Courtney was kind of a manipulator with you, you know. It was like uh He'd ask me for $20 and then turn around and ask you for $20. $20, yes. And then he was asking Kim for $20, $20. and now he got $60. He
1: got $60. That's how he would do it. And I I wish I could do it for him now.
3: Courtney was energetic and outgoing. I mean, he was so handsome. He had this caramel-colored skin and the most incredible smile. He spent all his money, and I mean all his money, on food, clothes, haircuts, and shoes. My mom just came back from Wisconsin. She bought me this hat, say, Gucci. Gucci boy. After Courtney died, I went through his phone.
7: Look at Uncle
3: Courtney. All those videos and photos and social <laughs> Woo, media. It made me feel like he was still right there with me.
6: Really, we called him Gucci in high school. I don't know if it was because he was Fleet or because he looked like Gucci man, but we just, we called him Gucci.
3: One of his friends was a kid named Chancellor Bennett. You might know this guy as Chance the Rapper.
6: I got suspended, ooh, you got suspended for chief in a hundred blunts, fourteen, four hundred minutes. Thans on in a the stands, they hands for Mr. Bennett that racket over the But yeah, I met Gucci when ooh, I was like in summer goodness, school, you know what I'm saying? Not to, uh, and I, I don't hope I hope that doesn't have, like, a negative connotation and stuff, but, like, I mean, I was in summer school. Everybody right. goes to summer school. Yeah. So, yeah, he would freestyle with me. We would, you know, kick it after, after school and stuff and just be rapping, walking down the street and beatboxing and stuff like that.
3: Courtney would always tell me, Mom, this guy is going to be huge.
6: That was, like, a thing at the time. Like, I was passing out CDs. Like, I was burning CDs and, like, standing outside of Columbia, and he would be standing out there with me or, like, he would take CDs and from me, and give them to other people and stuff, too.
3: They went to Jones College Prep. It's one of the top public schools in Chicago. Courtney played on the basketball team, and he helped them win a city championship. When he was 17 or 18, he got a tattoo of a basketball across his chest, and it says, Ball till I fall. I've always hated tattoos because I'm a religious person and I believe tattoos are a desecration of the body. When I first saw the tattoo, I literally cried. And I said, You just want to hurt your mama, don't you? Then he got more tattoos, including one that says Mama's Boy. How do you like that? Courtney got a partial scholarship to play ball in Indiana but we could only afford to help him so much. So he had to come back home after one semester. He got a job as a janitor and at Dunkin' Donuts.
1: Gotta get ready for
6: work, oh my God. Put on my pants, put on my shoes, put on my shirt, ready for work.
3: He was wandering through life until a friend recruited him into the business called World Ventures. Courtney's job was to sign up members for discount vacations all over the world. Courtney was determined to go to the top. And that's when I really saw Courtney turning into a man. That's my mom again. Because of
1: his positive mental attitude that he developed, his change of thinking,
3: how people treated him, he became more of a leader now. In just one year, Courtney signed up so many people. The company helped him lease that BMW as a bonus.
8: It is World Ventures wings and wheels. (laughs) Step one, Get your wings. Step two, get your wheels.
3: Courtney asked me if I would sign for the car for him, and I told him, no way. If he wanted to get someone else to help him, that was on him. So he convinced his friend, Christian Hernandez, to co-sign. For Courtney, the BMW was validation. And we all loved that car. His cousin Sean, who's a rapper, used it in his music video.
6: I'm addicted to the money. I'm addicted to these hoes. I'm addicted to this cash. All I know is count that dog, count that dog, Count
3: that dog. You know, it was just like a typical rap video. Sexy girls dancing all around and the guys and money. And Courtney's in the video too. Count that dog, count that dough. Yeah, count that dough. Courtney was living the high life. Just a few months before he died, he went on a trip to Cancun.
7: Look at this! <laughs> hey, I'm supposed to be at Dunkin Donuts right now, but, like, I did something different. I said yes, I stay consistent, I work hard.
3: I mean, I this was a trip here. of a lifetime. He was just like he was on top of the world. Hey, Macarena! He did the Macarena in the hotel lobby. He went scuba diving. You ready to Rode a jet ski. He was doing really, really well, getting close to moving out my basement and moving in with some friends. Here's what I know about the last day of my son's life. Courtney helped a friend move a sofa. He talked to my mom about becoming an in-home caregiver. The application was due the next day. That day, I remember I got my hair done. And that night, I caught some of the Republican presidential debates.
4: I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands?
3: While I was watching that, Courtney was given a presentation for World Ventures. Around midnight, Courtney swung by Paisons, his favorite pizza place. It's a couple of blocks from our house in Cicero, just outside of Chicago. And he ran into his friend, Chris.
6: The next day, we were supposed to go on a little road trip. We were going to be there for the weekend, so we were preparing everything.
3: Courtney showed Chris this book he was reading, it was called Think and Grow Rich. He was already on Chapter 3.
6: I always tell people this story because it felt weird because he left the parking lot right from Paisan's and I didn't even get in my car yet. You know, usually I say bye to somebody, I'll get in my car and I go. But I stood outside, and I'm like, man, that's crazy, you know, he hit
3: the bonus with the car, like he's happy, he's reading that book. But Courtney really wasn't headed home. It turns out he had this girlfriend, a coworker he was dating, and he was heading to see her. I replayed this night so many times in my head. I wish I had texted him like I usually would do to see when he'd be back home. Maybe then he would've just come back to the house. I don't know why I didn't check on him that night.
7: I'm excited, man. Reason why is because, you know, I understand that I'm God's highest form of creation.
3: Before he drove into the city, Courtney posted on Snapchat, he's in his car Wearing a red hoodie under his peacoat. He looked so happy
7: and hopeful. The that I want and obtain in my life, I can do them. I just gotta believe in myself.
3: His name on Snapchat was Born Leader 34. 34 was Courtney's favorite number. And the night he died was March 4th, 3-4. An hour after he posted on Snapchat, my son was being rushed to the hospital. I am calling because I just received a patient here to our ER. Um, the hospital called the police in Cicero, where I live.
7: Okay. And um, what's the name of this gentleman? His name is Courtney
3: Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. And you want his mom advised that he's in the hospital? Yes. He was actually en route to, I guess, a police station nearby because he had been shot. And then he came in by ambulance.
4: I don't know if you want to tell her what the nature of the injury is yet?
7: Nah, probably not. I probably don't want to. Just that he's injured in the hospital.
3: A little after 2 o'clock in the morning, the Cicero police came bamming on our door. When I opened the door, he asked me, "Did I know a Courtney Copeland?" I was already thinking that this is bad. The police told us that Courtney was in the hospital in Chicago, and that's it. And at
1: that point, I remember you dropping to your knees, you said, "Mom, I know he's dead. I know he's gone. They just don't do this. They don't. I know this is when someone's dead."
3: I assumed that it had to be some type of uh, auto accident because Courtney was always known for texting and driving. I remember my husband Brent driving our family to Illinois Masonic Hospital. My mom, Courtney's sisters, my aunt, we were all there. We rolled in our town and country minivan and it was in the middle of the night. And I don't even recall any other cars being on the road. Right away, the staff wanted to take us to the family room. But I knew, I knew what the family room was. That's when they tell you that your kid is dead. And I didn't want to go. They sent in this nurse, a very kind nurse. She stayed with me. She held my hand to try to keep me calm. I had no idea then how important she would become to my investigation.
2: That's
7: when the doctor came out and told us the news, you know, that
1: he had died from a gunshot wound, and we were like, well. Why, why, what do you mean a gunshot wound? Who shot him? When the doctor said my, Courtney was shot, that was like an unbelievable, we didn't hear anything else. Cause everybody drops to the floor screaming, yelling. Okay, oh no, oh no, oh no. Cause that was the last thing that we would think Courtney would be involved in, any form of shooting because he was not that type of individual, okay? And he was a nonviolent person. He would, you know, he would not be involved in anyone that would have guns.
3: The doctor told us that when Courtney arrived, they opened up his chest to try to save him. I'd been at the hospital for over an hour, and I still hadn't seen my son. And you know, as a mother, you want to have that confirmation that this is indeed your child. They told me I couldn't see him until detectives got there. And I told them, I said, well, I'm going to tell you right now. If I can't see my son, I'm going to tear this whole hospital up. They finally let us see Courtney. He was on a hospital bed in the trauma unit. After a few moments, I asked everyone to leave. Because I had to be with him. I had to be with him by myself. I began to touch him. His body was still warm. I caressed his face and kissed his forehead. And I told him, I was like, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you
1: when you needed me the most.
3: and I walked out of the room, and then it really hit me that Courtney was gone. And I just collapsed. Courtney's friends and our extended family were piling into the hospital waiting room. I remember two detectives coming in. They were white and middle-aged, and they told us what they knew. They said Courtney was shot in his car and drove himself to the police station. Courtney jumped out of his car and flagged down an officer for help. But the car was still moving, so the officer told him to put it in park. So Courtney hopped back into the car And put the car in park. And then they said that Courtney ran over to the officer again and grabbed his arm and said, I've been shot before collapsing. Then came the moment when I felt something more than grief, I felt suspicious. See, the detective said they wanted to ask me some questions. In their first one, they asked me if Courtney was the owner of the BMW. Remember when I told you that Courtney had to get a co-signer for the car? Christian Hernandez. Christian's name was actually on the registration and not Courtney's. Courtney had been stopped before because of this. So when the police asked me if he was the real owner of the car, I started to think, maybe this was a police stop gone wrong. You know, like Philando Castile up in Minnesota. Maybe the police stopped him after running his plates and seeing a black man driving a car registered in a Hispanic man's name. The first thing that Courtney's friends did is went looking for clues. They went to Belmont Cragen, the neighborhood where Courtney was shot. They saw skid marks and some broken glass on this corner near a Catholic church. They scooped up the glass and talked to a neighbor who said she heard gunshots. We put up reward posters all over the neighborhood. So we went with the flyers, and and we were on the radio. Is anybody that can help us get answers? First, we offered a $5,000 reward, then a 6000 then a 6600 In the end, we put up $10,000, but we got no answers. We tried to keep Courtney's story alive in the news. Here I am on a local show. Call Jamaica Funk. The mold Give us a little background of Courtney. What 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 did Courtney do? Courtney was a senior sales rep at World Ventures uh, Travel uh, Industry, and he was a rising member of the uh, of the Chicagoland area. So he had. I wasn't just trying to solve his case. I was also fighting to protect his name. Police say Copeland was not a gang member. They can only
1: guess right now why he was shot. He
3: graduated from Police Jones said he wasn't a gang member. Why was that even a question? A I had to do everything I could to protect his image. When reporters asked to use photos of him, I made sure he looked his best. So, so, I, just, so I just don't want the narrative to be negative about my son because, not because he was not that, that
4: that's my biggest fear. OK, so you prefer we use the picture of him in the tux. That's yeah. on his Facebook yeah.
3: page. Whoever did this to my son, I ask that you turn yourself in. I ask that you ask for forgiveness from God. Looking back at my face on TV that night he died, it's literally hard to believe that was even me. How many
2: kids have to
0: die? How many black children? I have to die in Chicago.
3: I remember being in so much pain, but I needed to find answers. That was the only way I knew how to keep going. A few people did come forward with tips. One guy actually told me he was driving by the police station and saw Courtney on the ground with cops just standing around him. This bystander basically told me when he looked at the scene, he felt that the police were doing something to him. And then when I began to press him, trying to get more information, and that's when he was like, you know, I don't really want to get involved. You know, you don't understand the police around here. They'll come after me. And then he finally told me, he was like, look, I have children and I can't risk my life to basically tell you what I saw. Then there was a tow truck driver. He took a video. It's hard to make out, but it looks like Courtney is laying on the ground outside the police station. The lights are flashing, and no one is helping him. One of Courtney's friends, a world venture guy named June, says he got in touch with the tow truck driver.
7: I mean, his theory, the guy in the tow truck says his theory was that the police did it. That was, that's the first thing that came out of his mind. That's what he's been saying since the beginning.
3: What the police told me is that they did everything they could to save him. But you know what? It just wasn't adding up. So I said to myself, I just got to bury my baby and lay him to rest. And then I'll find out what really happened. I needed some strength, so I turned to Courtney the only way I could.
7: Any obstacle, you know, that you're going through within your life today, understand that God will never put you through anything that you cannot handle. The reason why they call it a pass is because you already went through...
3: Remember how I told you that since Courtney's death, I go through his phone? Guess how he had me listed? Uh Uh-oh, with three exclamation points. As in, uh uh-oh, my mom's calling, and you know what? He was right to be afraid cuz when I get onto something I don't let up. And I'm putting the police on blast right now. I will find out the truth of what happened to my son. And when I do, the whole world will know it.
1: Everybody somebody's every day.
4: That was the first episode of Somebody, winner of the 2020 Best Serialized Story Award. It was narrated by Chaparl Wells, produced by Allison Flowers and Bill Healy, and edited by Sarah Geist for The Invisible Institute, Topic Studios, The Intercept, and iHeartRadio, in association with Tenderfoot TV. It was mixed by Michael Raphael with sound design by Bart Warshaw and Carl Scott. At our 2020 virtual awards ceremony, producer Bill Healy spoke about the impact that the series has had since its release.
2: Since the podcast came out, two big things have happened. The first is that
4: the city of Chicago's Office of the Inspector General is looking into Courtney's death and the surrounding incidents. The second big thing is that we have released a curriculum of 10 lessons for teachers to use the audio storytelling as a springboard to further learning around these important issues. Thank you to everyone who listened and to everyone who helped tell this story. After the whole team behind the podcast Somebody had spoken, Shaprall had the final say on the virtual stage.
3: My son, Courtney Copeland, is somebody. George Floyd is Somebody. Brianna Taylor is somebody. Vincent Chin is somebody. Antonio Venezuela is somebody. They were somebody's brother, mother, sister, father, someone out there loved them. And I know that God has used me to bring forth this labor of love. And I am grateful for that opportunity. And if I could help somebody then my living has not been in vain.
4: That was Shapiro Wells speaking alongside the team that won this year's Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Best Serialized Story Award for the podcast Somebody. To listen to the rest of the series as well as the rest of this year's winners, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best. Our final piece of the hour won the 2020 award for best documentary in a non-English language. This year's winner is a story from Las Raras, a Spanish language podcast by Chilean makers Catalina Mai and Martin Cruz. The show tells inspiring stories of people who defy norms through their actions and life decisions. Their winning piece, Crosses in the Desert, follows Alvaro Anciso, a retired man living in Tucson, Arizona. This is him.
7: We try to not talk too much here. This is sort of sacred ground.
4: When Alvaro arrived in Tucson, he was shown a map of the Sonoran Desert with thousands and thousands of little red dots, each representing a single body of a migrant who died on their journey to the United States. Every Tuesday for the past six years, Alvaro has gone out into the desert to find each spot and to place a decorated wooden cross there in memory of the fallen. On those trips, along with his crosses, he leaves drums of water for those still making the trek. He calls the project "Donde mueren los sueños," where dreams die. To date, he has placed over 900 crosses.
8: Alvaro,
7: ¿cuál es la primera cruz que vamos a poner? Vamos a poner dos al mismo tiempo aquí. Aqui murieron cuatro personas Iban de la patrulla fronteriza y and el carro and
4: Crosses in the Desert follows Alvaro on one of these trips with volunteers who have been inspired by his work. We learn about the dangerous path many migrants take through the Sonoran Desert. We also hear from those who try to help them and those that seek to destroy every trace of that help. Here's a short excerpt from the Spanish language story "Crosses in the Desert."
7: It has in the desert seven for A of all this has to do with my experience in Vietnam. Después de 50 años, he vuelto a tratar con los muertos. He vuelto a pensar en los muertos. OK, need one cross here. And could you pour all that concrete around it? Just dump the whole thing in there. All of it? Yeah.
8: ¿Qué le están a ahí, el
7: El cemento para que se mantenga la cruz erecta por muchos años. Y ahora le vamos a mezclar el cemento con el agua.
8: Mientras muy respetuosamente realizamos este ritual, nuestro silencio contrasta con el ruido de los aviones que pasan constantemente sobre nosotros.
7: Los aviones todo el día están dando vueltas por este sector, porque por aquí pasan muchos migrantes. Allá está México, a 30 o 40 millas. Y aquí está la carretera pavimentada, donde es la meta para muchos. Y hay aviones que no vemos, son los que llaman drones que no los vemos pero que están tomando por ejemplo en este momento han tomado fotos de, lo, de nosotros aquí ya saben que estamos aquí o sea que estamos muy vigilados esto es como una una zona militarizada vivimos en como si estuviéramos en guerra
4: That was an excerpt from Crosses in the Desert. Winner of the 2020 Best Documentary in a Non-English Language Award, it was written and edited by Catalina Mai, with sound design by Martine Cruz for the podcast Las Raras. Dennis Maxwell produced and co-wrote this story, and Andreas Neusser provided the musical score. At the virtual awards ceremony, producer Dennis Maxwell delivered this message:
8: This story is hard to listen to but it's even harder to understand how we allowed this to happen. Doing the research for this story, I learned how the US government created a strategy to deter migrants from coming to the country by militarizing traditional boarding crossing points. This has forced migrants to venture into more remote and deadly areas. The number of bodies found dead in the desert was a way of measuring the effectiveness of the strategy. I wish we didn't need Alvaranciso at his 75 years of age to be installing crosses in the desert. I wish we didn't have migrants dying in our backyard or languishing in immigration prisons. I wish we didn't separate families and keep migrant children in cages. I hope this story served to shine a bit of light in this tremendous humanitarian crisis. Thank you. Gracias.
4: Dennis Maxwell, producer of Crosses in the Desert, from the Spanish-language podcast Las Raras. To listen to the full story with subtitles, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Pallas Shaw. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Third Coast's executive director is Shirley Alfaro, the artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer, and the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, Arts for Illinois, the National Endowment for the Arts, Illinois Humanities, Agadena Foundation, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. And of course, a very special thanks to our many individual contributors. Third Coast is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 20 years of our competition as well as thousands of outstanding audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Best of the Best.
8: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.